0: All right, buddy. Great conversation we just had with doctors Lucy Hone and Denise Quinlan. Lucy and Denise run the New Zealand Institute for Wellbeing and Resilience, and they're a couple of just really incredible—not just academics, but practitioners in the space. Uh, Lucy has an excellent book, Resilient Grieving: How to Find Your Way Through a Devastating loss. She has a TED Talk along similar lines called The Three Secrets of Resilient People, which was among the top 20 TED Talks in 2020. Uh, Denise runs a really wonderful podcast by the name of Bringing Wellbeing to Life. Uh, We'll share that in the show notes. She's an experienced practitioner. She's given talks and workshops all over the world. So they're, they're both really powerhouses individually but they've collaborated in such a wonderful way through this institute and have their hands in all sorts of things. And we talked about all sorts of topics.
1: What were some of the highlights for you, John? Yeah, thanks, Nick. So I loved their distinction between individual and collective resilience. And they argue that you have to have collective resilience to to be resilient at all. So these two are codependent on each other, inextricably linked. And they said some really interesting things about post-traumatic growth. And how that requires more than just having had a traumatic experience. It also requires a struggle after the traumatic experience to to recover. And they define this as where your your worldview is shattered or you've you've lost a kind of a strong sense of meaning in your life. You have to rebuild your life afterwards. And that's how post-traumatic growth is possible. How about
0: yeah. you? That that part, that was super powerful. I mean, anyone listening should go check out Lucy's TED Talk, um, but just diving into some of the nuances between fragility, resilience, anti-fragility, collective resilience, and just this general question of like, how do you flourish and keep feeling pretty good when stuff sucks? I mean, it's the simple way to say it, right? At minimum, let alone if you're experiencing trauma. So I, I was just really happy we got into this topic overall. It's long overdue. Mm-hmm. Great. So, awesome. Well, without further ado, here is our conversation with Drs. Denise Quinlan and Lucy Holm. Hope you enjoy. Will you both each individually tell us, and maybe you have the same definition, you work so closely together, how do you think of flourishing?
2: So, um, I did my PhD on flourishing and well-being definitions and looking at all those different theoretical models. Mm -hmm. um, Because it seemed to me that if we wanted to actually promote and protect human flourishing, then we better understand what it is. And so I looked at all of those different models and the definition that we use is feeling good and functioning well, which is basically the kind of most standard definition. And we like it, of course, because it's theoretically sound. But in our work, we're communicating in a way that people can actually resonate with it's also really good and important and from that perspective because it just makes sense to people. Feeling good, okay, so it's about being happy. But functioning well, okay, it's about more than just being happy. Mm. So then in terms of resilience, where does that come in? So we do adopt Karen Rivich's definition of resilience, which is that to steer through adversity um, and learn from it. But actually in Denise and my hands, we actually sort of take it a step further into Mm -hmm. layman's terms that resilience is about all the things that you do to enable you either to get back to flourishing or flourish while the tough stuff is going on. So, you know, the goal is basically feeling good and functioning well, but resilience is how you either maintain that despite whatever is going on in your life or you gradually over time get back to feeling good and functioning well which yeah. if you have really adverse conditions and potentially traumatic events obviously takes time so it's a bit simplistic Lucy, that be, we're all aiming to flourish all the time
3: that 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 time piece has been really important recently i've been i've been mentioning that a lot with people that you know if resilience is about being able to withstand cope with and recover over time from adversity and challenge. And I'm pointing out to people that one, that doesn't mean being immune. Right. We are brought to our, there are things that will bring us to our knees. And sometimes it will take a long time to recover. And grief Mm -hmm. is a really good example, Lucy, of, you know, bereavement is is something that really affects us for a long time. And saying to people that, yeah, it's not about being immune. And it's not about, and also it's not about bouncing back. Sometimes it's about crawling forward till you can stand again, you know? Mm -hmm.
0: So that makes total sense. Um, Karen's a friend of mine. I recommend books all the time. No book do I recommend more than The Resilience Factor. Um, But in fairness, Lucy, maybe I need to dig into yours as well. Um, So I'd love to keep digging into that topic. And I want to ask a follow-up question because I've been doing a lot of work around this concept of anti-fragility which we sort of extend, right, Um, I'm going to say beyond resilience, not in that it's better or worse, but rather than bouncing back, say, to baseline, is is there actually some observable sort of growth experienced from that trauma, from that adversity, from that unpleasantness? Either of both of you done some work in this area. Does that concept resonate with you? Yeah.
2: Yeah, we haven't done research, empirical research in it. we do um in our training so we're now running a short cohort based course called a better way to grieve mm. which is basically getting people to understand that there are better ways than the five stages of grief and that they need to find their better way personalize it and in that we use zoom polls so we're starting to gather that data and certainly Yeah, people, um, you do see growth and we've just recently asked them what they want more training on and grief and growth is the number one topic that they wanted to hear more about. But having said that, we are so careful, aren't we, Denise, and sensitive to the fact that it's bloody annoying to be told you have to grow out of your trauma. I bet.
3: And the no. other piece that is interesting is, you know, the work on post-traumatic growth is really clear on, if you like, the definitions of that. The post-traumatic growth is growth that comes after um, an event or adversity that smashes your worldview and you have to put it together again. So I think we have to be really careful about putting labels of post-traumatic growth on, you know, failing an exam. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. And so I think, you know, pulling back when we think about the anti-fragility, as human beings, we're always learning from our experiences. And so there should always be ongoing moving forward and growth. And um, I think I think another piece that kind of feeds into the anti-fragility is collective resilience. And I know mm-hmm. you do you want me to mention that?
1: Well, we do want to We do want to talk about that. Yes, absolutely. Can I just go into something you've yes. just said about yes. post-traumatic growth? We're so, going to nerd out with you, but we will come back to collective resilience. We're going to get, we're gonna get yeah. into the weeds with you. Yeah, well, sorry, we, definitely, yeah. we definitely want to talk about collective resilience, yeah. but I just want to ask what you just said about post-traumatic growth. That's really interesting that, for example, a student failing an exam maybe can't experience post-traumatic growth, but can't they experience trauma from that kind of experience?
2: Well, so I mean, actually, in terms of post traumatic growth, the trauma is subjective. That's, you know, that's a fact. It, it is, if it's traumatic enough for you, then yes, you can grow from it. But as Denise so carefully said, it is not the trauma that gives you the growth, it is the struggle that comes from that trauma. So if the struggle is sufficient, to smash apart all of your existing core beliefs about how the world should work, then there is potential for post-traumatic growth. You'd hope that failing one exam would not be sufficient to literally dismantle your core beliefs about what, what is meant to happen in the world, how people are meant to act, what your life might look like going forward. So I How think does, that is really yeah, important. Like
3: having your PhD rejected and downgraded to a master's, that's a kind of an exam event that could smash a worldview, an mm-hmm. identity, you know, and a, a moving forward. But one but 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 short of that, you know are we talking about real are we talking about changing identities i think one of the things that comes in here that we have to be really careful about is the labelling we use you know if if everything is trauma oh i don't yeah. like that for people you know one of the things we talk about in our work is struggle is part of life this is normal adversity rainy days failing exams are a normal part of life and mm-hmm. and i'm i'm really kind of wary of us labeling that trauma i'm much more keen to go this is part of life we mm. every you are not alone
0: okay you know? so can we go with that for a second because yeah. you probably saw john smile i can't think of an episode We've done about 20 so far. I can't think of an episode where the utility of unpleasantness, right, and its impact on well-being in the research hasn't come up. It comes up almost every single time, right? So my question for you is, okay, trauma is, at least on some level, subjectively experienced. Makes some sense because we experience well-being, at least by some measures, subjectively as well. It's kind of like how far you're bouncing away from the baseline, more or less, right? What's the difference or how do you find the point of distinction between utilitarian unpleasantness and actual trauma? And I hesitate to even say actual, right? But I think you understand my question.
2: So this is not our area of expertise, firstly. But what I would say is that definition that post-traumatic growth comes out of the struggle, a a struggle that is sufficient to absolutely decimate your core beliefs. Now, I think that's easy to understand. I'll give you an example that for us, when we, um, you know, you all here know that we lost our daughter in a tragic car accident and her best friend and a really good friend of mine in 2014, So obviously that is the moment that your entire life, as you thought you were going to live it and you thought you knew it, was just smashed apart. So for me, um, I remember Marty talking to me about post-traumatic growth and and I remember reading about it and, and seeing the definition as, that your life is better off than before. And I was like, whoa, no thanks, everyone. I will not accept that my life is better off without Abby. But can I see growth along those five dimensions? Yeah, absolutely, I can. That's That I accept. But what was interesting for me is that when we went through the COVID pandemic, particularly the beginning lockdowns and then the really severe lockdowns, is that I realised very quickly that the trauma that we had gone through, both in the earthquakes where I live and then losing Abby, had meant that I had completely readjusted my life expectations and I'd readjusted my daily life practices. And I really had um, rebuilt and reconfigured my core beliefs in response to those traumatic events. So that when COVID came along, I looked around and went, everyone was talking about what they would change. Now they'd had this experience. And I was like, oh no, we've done all that. We did all that change before. So it was substantial enough that the events created long lasting change in our behaviors and how we experience the world. And mm. so does that make sense? I think there is a really difference there. It's very helpful. And
3: if you think about, um, say, the you know other trauma like abuse by a mm. teacher or a parent that smashes your trust mm. in a relationship sure. and a place that should be safe so I think there is something about this this um smashing your your worldview your beliefs in the way mm. the world works your beliefs in what you can rely on um and the Christ has got to be
0: sufficient
2: to really yeah. break that down, all of your assumptions and your deeply held core beliefs. And what you do in the process is then rebuild them over time. Um, yeah. Which is,
0: I, I don't want to take this too far because you both just humbly acknowledge this is not your area of expertise. You're sending off all sorts of like interesting thoughts in my head. What was it? A week ago, two weeks ago, John, we talked to Lisa Miller. Do either of you know Lisa? Lisa's a spiritual a psychology. Dancer. Yeah, she's a spiritual child, the awakened brain, you know, big, big famous TED talk. Anyway, so we're we're talking about spirituality and flourishing. And so the the thought just came to my head. I don't expect anyone to have an answer, but I want to put it out there. If you have a strong enough sense of meaning and spiritual belief, that your quote-unquote worldview cannot be shifted, and I don't know that anyone has that. Okay, all right, go, go, Denise, go, go. I saw your face. So
3: one of the things that happens often in traumatic bereavement, or not even not even necessarily traumatic, is I cannot believe in a God that would do this to my child. Right. You know, where right. people have experienced long suffering, so um, for some people, their faith makes them. Their faith is strengthened. When we sat with the Muslim community in the mosque in Christchurch after the shooting, it was their faith that was the thread that was pulling them through. Yep. But I have seen other people turn away from the church yeah. after yeah. Um, a, a loss, a trauma. I
2: loss. mean, essentially, so, coming back from loss is the number one process that you are doing is meaning making. You are right. consolidating. Yeah this terrible loss whether it is a divorce or dementia or a death or mm-hmm. you know all sorts of loss you are um rebuilding your life schema around the fact that that event was possible and that it has happened
1: oh, so it takes
3: time okay.
1: so okay and- this 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 clears up very nicely something I wanted to ask you because I was thinking of post-traumatic growth experiences such as you know where some of the primary research was done on post-traumatic stress disorder you know army veterans for example military personnel where they just seen a shocking experience like their friend get killed I was thinking in those kind of contexts you might not have your world view shattered like maybe none of your beliefs have been shattered you knew this happened but all of a sudden mm-hmm. you've watched your close friend mm-hmm. get killed so it's more that it's just such a deep unpleasant experience that it requires mm-hmm. a hell of a lot of getting over but the way you have described it there Lucy I can now see how it would connect with those kind of experiences too that You'd have to rebuild your life around it in that certain yes. things.
3: Um, Tom,
1: Attic,
3: is, yeah. Tom Attic describes our life as having like a spider web of connections. And when somebody is taken from it, there's a hole in the web, and we have to rebuild around it. Right. And it it affects not just like in a family situation or in a friend situation. It affects not just you, but the other people who are grieving too, and um, they may all grieve differently. And so, all of those relationships change.
2: You know, <clears throat> um, and like, I was just going to add quickly here before we leave this topic, that which is this all leads to why my resilient grieving model is a load of jigsaw pieces. So, in our hands the grief process is, basically comes from the fact that your world has been smashed apart, as you know it, and what you've lost pieces, you've lost a, you know, key part of your jigsaw piece, you no longer recognise your life. But over time, what you are doing during your bereavement, as you are learning to, relearning to live in the world, is putting your life story it back into a coherent form and in our hands we always say to people you have to find what makes sense to you and what works for you to do that and every Kind of aha moment, every little piece that you pick up that's you find out about oscillation theory, or you hear about continuing bonds, or you work out a ritual of some way or some legacy moment, you know, something that you can really hold on to that makes that process a bit easier. Those are your pieces of the jigsaw that you put together over time. And eventually you are rebuilding this coherent picture. Um, mm-hmm. of, so it's a process of sense making.
0: So does collective resilience, to come back to that, because I'm making lots of natural connections, but I want to make sure I understand it. Are you talking about, you know, resilience through collective behavior, meaning an individual, you know, you go through your trauma, Lucy, right? And you, friends, family, community, you mentioned, right, the the shooting and the mosque and those sorts of things. Is it a matter of we are more resilient? I mean, it's rhetorical. I know the answer, but we're more resilient when we have those positive connections. Or are you talking about collective resiliency, as in an entire community's resiliency?
3: it could operate at different levels, but okay. if we if we unhook this from trauma, okay, and we say and we just think about the last couple of years and which communities and organizations coped well through the pandemic, which organizations have not had staff fleeing from them, the, they, they tend to be places where the quality of the relationships, the level of support, how much people value being known to each other, that it's it's all that stuff. And mm-hmm. so one of the things that we say is resilience grows between us as well as within you. Mm. and if we think about individual resilience as learning to swim collective resilience is about the health of the pool and right. from 2020 on we had so many requests globally like last year Lucy reckons we worked with over 30,000 people but we had massive requests for oh my god can you make tell us how to be resilient and tell us how to make our staff resilient but but if you are just telling people to develop their personal resilience strategies without attending to the pool they're in, it's the twenty twenty two equivalent of saying take a concrete pill and harden up. Yeah. Because mm. if you have, if you're asking people to just it, put it all on their shoulders, be more resilient, but we're not paying any attention to the way people are able to interact. If we're doing, um shifts where there's no handover, if we're never making time for teams to get together and we're not actually looking after the pool, we're making it really hard for people to swim.
2: Mm. And this comes down to the individual level too, because, you know, as Denise and I, as you like to say, Denise, and in our training at the moment, we've got a slide that says, you know, what ha- has helped you get through in the last year? And, of course, when the, when everyone has those conversations, it's not what, but it's who. They mm. always come back and talk about yeah, people. Yeah. And we do this, there's 13 of us at the Institute. We do this for each other. You know, one of us is looking, as Denise would say, a bit crispy around the edges. Oh, my God. <laughs> Getting close to burnout. And it's always one of us would be like, hey, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> colleague. Yeah.
3: And, and I wasn't just a bit, I used to say, a bit crispy around the edges. And then recently I was like, I'm setting off smoke alarms. Um, <laughs> I am taking a week like off. And, like and when it. I said that, Lucy said, yeah, good, good. You're <laughs> not good to it. be around at the moment. But, but I mean, the uh,
2: reality is that is collective resilience, is, you know, yeah. me saying to you, yeah, you go and take a week off. Tell me what do you want to do? Like, if you want to do anything because she wasn't actually taking a week's holiday, but she was just going to get away from emails and going to get away from the kind of the admin of the business. And so I said to go and choose the bits that you want to do and go and have some creative, you know, thinking time and tell me what needs to be done so that I can pick it up. And we've had, I've definitely had moments Mm. in the last few years after Abby dying when I'd be about to go and stand on a stage somewhere and I'd either say to Denise or someone else, um you know one of our other colleagues actually i can't do this on my own today i just don't have that inner strength you're coming with me just either come and do a q and a with me or come and stand right next to me but i literally need your physical support and strength right now to face this that's collective resilience
0: Mm-mm. It, um, I, I want I want to give John a chance to bridge, you know, kind of a, I think, a concept or a series of studies and some research from the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard. But I'll just quickly mention, we talked earlier about antifragility and the, the my partner and I, the person I'm working with, we always talk about really anything in this space. Top down, so starts in the head. Bottom up, starts in the body. What you're talking about is outside in which is the third part, right? The, the surrounding environment has to play a role in this. Right? And,
3: and one of the things we say is we are each other's environment. Right. We worry an awful lot about the the, the the air conditioning and the chairs and all the rest of it. But the person you are sitting next to has a much bigger impact on your day than a chair. Mm-hmm. And being aware of how we impact each other And we often talk to people about, you know, we're like weather systems. What kind of weather system are you bringing to work today? Mm. You know, are you mainly rain and a a storm cloud? Um, And and being aware of of that responsibility of how we impact each other Mm -hmm. and, and looking at what are the kind of. You know, Jane Dutton has shared some beautiful work around yeah. the kind of work routines that help people build psychological safety. Yeah. Because fundamentally, when you build psychological safety, the outcome is collective resilience.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. Okay, so I mean, I'd like to ask before we move on, a connected question to the to the point Nick was just mentioning there about one way to connect with some research and flourishing is can you be resilient? without possessing collective resilience? Do you have to have the latter I, To I would say no. I'm Isaac
3: Pulitansky has done mm-hmm. a lot of work in this space. And Isaac Pulitansky says there is no individual well-being without collective well-being. Mm-hmm. And And Isaac would take that bigger to go, mm-hmm. how can you be well right. in a completely unjust and unfair society?
1: Right, so you can't have well-being then either individually unless... The collective, the context in which you are in, people are well, or the environment is. Well,
3: you know, you can, you can, I can look after my own well-being, but if I'm, if I'm living with massive injustice all around me, and doesn't that have an impact? Or... Yeah, I was
2: going to say, why would you? I mean, really, yeah. Why would you want individual well-being um, for one thing? Um, just just doesn't make any sense to me because, and also, you're not getting meaning. Yeah, you know, let's if we, even if we look at well-being and we look at any of the models of well-being. If there's meaning and accomplishment and um, emotions and connections in there, then no, I would challenge that and say you can't have individual well-being as an island because all of those um, meaning comes from serving something bigger than yourself. Um, your yeah. social connections. I mean, we are social beings at heart, so no, not for me. Um, well, you know, but we Lu- come from Lu- a collectivist um culture yeah.
0: though now. So But Lucy, you also mentioned at the onset, you know, you did your your PhD on a lot of these different frameworks and models. And whenever I'm walking people through them, I I basically say, listen, none of them are the same, but almost yeah. all of them have two things in common, relationships yeah. and meaning. Yeah. Right. The two things that we're talking about.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So important. Hey. Um and meaning is about serving something bigger than yourself. So um about not being individual.
0: John and I have had conversations about whether or not conversations we've had with guests around a historical figure who I think is objectively evil could have been flourishing, could have been well, right? And the the, the, the direction we keep taking is no. What about character? What about virtue? What about altruism? What about positive impact? I think I hear you saying, something similar
3: we make we make strange accommodations okay um you know from the at the individual level um you know i've heard people there's an old kind of saying of you know oh a mother is only as happy as her happiest child we care about the people in our relationships at a collective level um we either care or we cut off pieces of ourselves and put barriers up you know. We've got a podcast coming out on Thursday with Helen Robinson, the CEO of the Auckland City Mission. Mm. And in part one, we're talking about how do you work on a mission so profoundly um, where there is so much suffering without burning out. In the second part, we're talking about what's the impact of poverty on well being mm. and on the people experiencing poverty and on the people, on the bystanders. And You know, and this is a bit I think is interesting. Like if we say, I can be flourishing in my own little bubble, but I have to maintain a bubble to pretend everything's okay. And as soon as I take that bubble down and I see massive suffering beyond me, what am I doing? I can either pretend it's not there or I can act. Does that
0: make sense? Of course. I, it's an no, interesting, it's where we draw it, the lines. Well, that's what I was going to say is when you said bubbles, I said, well, there's a lot of bubbles in play, right? And, and so like if the bubble is like does my family or in this case my wife have to be well for me to be well, I see a more direct connection than, for instance, if somebody halfway around the world isn't well. That I, I can't see the face. I can't feel the emotion. I can't be in their presence. Mm-hmm. Um but it, it makes sense on the surface. I'm just thinking, where what are those different bubbles, right? And and where are the to the way you said it, where are yeah. those lines?
3: And and it's it's like, yeah, it's lines, but it's also maybe mental gymnastics. And I think it would be really interesting to explore what's the cost, what's the the allostatic load, the cognitive load. Of shutting out an awful lot of stuff to maintain your bubble.
2: Although we're pretty good at it because we have that confirmation bias, don't we? And, mm-hmm. you know, people mm-hmm. are quite good at staying in their bubbles, as we know.
0: What's <laughs> okay? Do you think that counterbalances with what's the cost if you don't? Like the constant consumption of negative media, the constant consumption of negative news. Is that just like we need to develop a thicker skin anti-fragility, if you will, to like grow the capacity to keep taking that in and keep having an impact, right, on these other people, other communities?
3: Oh, look, there's there's two really different ways of thinking about this. One is kind of a more um, Buddhist approach, which is what Helen Robertson describes of being able to stand in the suffering and not be destroyed by it, but be transformed by it and use it as fuel to... Propel yourself forward to work for this cause, Mm. Um, and that's really coming from a a place of compassion, so that you can bear witness to it and not be destroyed by it. Mm. At a very everyday level, we have to draw our lines to go. What what is possible? What can I do in my day? What will a good day be? Lucy, Mm. do you want to speak to that piece?
2: Mm, just I think um, that is something we all need to take care of and be mindful of at an individual level is what we can tolerate and where we are focusing our attention and is that helping or harming us. In our yeah. quest to, whether yeah. it is literally get out of bed in the morning or, or in our quest to, in Helen Robinson's case, to actually you know do the good work that she's doing or if you are an advocate and, and your resilience is more about resistance you know how much bad news do you need to fuel that fire and how much is too much to immobilize you and that it that comes down to the individual and that is so important to have your self-awareness around that and then ways to self-regulate it
0: well said
3: there's a there's an interesting piece in here that ties in with judy Moscovitz's work um around positive mo- emotion being an important. Um, way of coping with significant health and life stress. and um and her, you know, she's worked with people with dementia, um people with AIDS and people who've been re- bereaved by AIDS, um stage four breast, a whole range of things, okay? Mm. Um, but the the piece that we often share with people in the work we do is positive and negative emotion can both fuel your action towards goals. Mm -hmm. Negative emotion, moving away from the bad thing, is is I think of it as the powerful fuel that can get the rocket off the ground. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to Mars, you need to let that go after takeoff and your longer term fuel that is not gonna eat away at your body is the positive emotion of what you're moving towards. Mm-hmm. and i think if you're trying to fuel a long term goal on positive emotion on negative emotion like um like a, a really like black lives matter like any social justice movement to stay fueled by anger and sadness is hard on you and, mm-hmm. a, and a much more sustainable long term approach is connecting to what's the benefit we're going to create for other people, what will it be like, what am I moving towards? Mm. And actually the same
2: is true of grief and loss that we know now, you probably, I don't know if you ever heard of oscillation theory, and that is that really the, the most healthy way to cope with your loss is to sometimes approach it and to actually, you know, deal with The loss and the misery and the keening and the yearning and all of that and then sometimes to have a break to kind of ebb and flow oscillate backwards and forwards and that's where positive emotion comes in as well that you know it's okay to take your to take breaks from grieving you don't want to be avoiding it but you absolutely can that's you know use top positive emotions as a top-up and a break in your restoration and recovery. In
0: our our fourth episode, we had uh, Anna Lemke on, and she wrote a wonderful book, Dopamine Nation. She basically said, like, the simple way to say it is well-being. Like, a lot of good research on well-being suggests actually should be oscillating between, sure, plenty of pleasant emotion, but the occasional bit of unpleasant emotion as well.
2: Yeah. And just in our daily lives, I've just had a six-week sprint, which is quite a long working sprint, um, where I, you know, had to get something done, big project, got down to probably only sleeping about four hours a night, exercising hard throughout because I knew I needed to keep the show on the road. And I really couldn't sleep more than that because I just had so much to do, so much cortisol and adrenaline. And it's taken me 10 days to come down from it and now I'm exhausted and it's I'm really fascinated to see and I'm but it's I'm enjoying that because I'm taking that as a good sign that I'm no longer absolutely hyped and working at you know a million miles an hour and it's okay to be tired I went back to bed I did three hours work the other day and went back to bed at 11 30 in the morning and thought I'm just gonna have a snooze this is a good thing (laughs)
1: sounds wonderful yeah. So so look, you you've got us you started to you have some description of some where we can glean some practical strategies from as to how we can develop and build resilience individually and collectively. Can we go a bit further on that? So what are most effective ways that you would both argue to build resilience individually and collectively, although we you both argue that they're inextricably linked.
2: Yeah, so I'd start with um, strong supportive connections. Actually, just connections. Let's think about those to start off with. So that is obviously people in your social network, but think broadly, and particularly in our loss work, something very practical we do is get people to realize they need different forms of support. So you need emotional support, you need practical support, you need knowledge support, you need instrumental, you know, intellectual support. But you also need support of people just to remember your person, memory support. So that's a kind of example of how much you can kind of break it down. And then you need connections as in spirituality, your religion, serving something bigger than yourself, certainly a sense of mission in the work we do, particularly where people come to us, they've either read seen my TED talk, read my book or but they come to us saying we want more. we want mm-hmm. as Denise would call it hope and a plan you know we yeah. we need yep. we know we need the fuel of hope but we actually want a sort of concrete plan as well. They so often talk about mission. It's really fascinating, isn't it, to hear them say, I've got to survive this loss because I've got to keep my job. I've got to keep my family together. I really wanted that career, career, you know, promotion, and I'm not prepared to let that go. I've already lost so much. Mm. So, um, Denise, what do you want to add to that?
3: kind of at a granular level, um when we think about what are we trying what are we tr- what do people need to be able to do to be resilience to be resilient um you cannot do any of this work unless you have self awareness and self regulation mm-hmm. so the ability to notice what's happening the ability to take that noticer pause to be able to make a choice about what you do and to be able to choose an action that's that's the absolute kernel of this work for me because if you can't do that we're we're in billiard ball territory you know we're just ricocheting around so self-awareness Being able to take the notice or pause and then being able to self-regulate, being able to choose. And that's where I love the question Lucy asks people all the time of, is what I'm doing helping or harming me? It's such a powerful question because it puts you back in the driver's seat of your life. It encourages self-awareness. It makes you take, you know, pause and take stock and go, where should I take action?
2: And it also encourages self-compassion, which is the the third real foundation of resilience. So I think, um,
3: you know, and we know, we know in resilience work, um, flexible and accurate thinking is important. If you, if your thinking's pretty sound and you're able to evaluate each situation as it comes and goes, yeah, you, you are more resilient for that, but most of us drop, jump, in, you know, kind of fall into certain habitual patterns or thinking traps, and working with Karen for a long time, you know, and, and we talk about flexible and accurate thinking, and I remember somebody asking her once, if you could only have one, which would you choose, flexibility or accurate thinking, and she said, I think I have to die in a ditch for flexibility because if you go for flexibility, there is choice. You're not locked. You're saying it could be this interpretation, or it could be this, and it's that sense of we're never we're never more dangerous or less resilient than when we believe we're absolutely certain about something you know
1: oh so, so flexibility is open-mindedness
3: yeah it's it's saying well you know like you know somebody's late home and you're like see they don't care and right. and it's being able to go maybe the traffic was really bad
1: right so it's like human- yeah, I, open-mindedness I, I, not being it's, refra- it's reframing it's like uh, yeah, stuff and stuff is exactly. see, two, two,
3: it's holding I want to add something
2: here. Um, we saw, because I've lived through the Christchurch earthquakes, where we had two years where our central city just collapsed and we couldn't get back into downtown for 18 months. It was literally cordoned off. So it was really interesting watching the resilience there at play amongst individuals and companies. So the most resilient individuals and companies were, as we saw in COVID again, the ones that were able to adapt to the circumstances. And so sometimes that was physically adapting. And I'm thinking now of all the accountants that we've worked with, Denise, over the last two years, who have actually managed to do audits virtually, which is something they never thought they would do. So yes, that's Mm -hmm. cognitive, but it's also physical, you know, it's using tech, it's being able to lean into different ways of thinking and acting. So I think we're talking... Mental
3: agility, you know.
0: Mental agility, emotional agility. Well, so that's where I was going to go, right? Because when I hear flexibility cognitively, I think there's your access point to emotional agility, which could be, am I unpleasant or feeling negative and I need to move myself to positive? But am I positive in my bubble and need to move myself back to negative, right? And and maybe, you know, not coincidentally, but this, this metaphor we keep working with, flexible, agile sounds a lot like potential mental gymnastics. Is this a double-edged sword? Is this... Cognitive flexibility, can you rationalize things? Can you be too open and not accurate enough and say, well, I kind of understand where that person's coming from, so I'll chill on the sidelines and be a bystander, sort of deal. You know what I mean?
3: If you think about any strengths-based approaches, um when you can have a strength that you underuse, or you can have a strength that you overuse, and it becomes an Achilles heel. Um, if we overuse mental agility it's maybe that we're always staying and moving and not and not um and not sometimes sitting in where the learning is like i remember um working with a family member some years back who found it really difficult to sit in the gunk of the mistake and the stuff up and, and I'm like, I don't want you to wallow and I don't want you to stay there forever, but I think it's really helpful to stay there long enough to get the learning process. Yeah, You mm-hmm. know, like if you don't, if you're not willing to sit in the discomfort until you've worked out where you stuffed up, why people were upset and what you could do differently next time, then you keep repeating the mistake. Yeah, so, to read the data. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so... And so I would say any of the capacities that we're talking about can be underused or overused. And that's that mm-hmm. lovely thing about finding our sweet spot is yeah. what I'm doing, helping or harming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I like Karen
2: Ravitch's, um metaphor here for resilience, that it is a stew. And yes. so it is a whole amalgam of ingredients, of ways of thinking and acting and being that we all make up differently so you know my stew is different to Denise's John's and Nick's you know some of these ingredients you might have in ample supply some of them you might be running a bit low on and that's okay as long as you have got some of them and you know which yours are and you're ready to build them and notice if they are being depleted yeah like
3: you know when when I worked with Karen, I think um part of the reason I, I was one of their their um senior trainers was I was the queen of me always everything thinking. Um I'm not I'm I'm a recovering pessimist and I don't have I'm low on optimism and I'm low on hope. You know?
0: Well you so, I know I know exactly what you mean, but just for our listeners, will you explain me always everything thinking?
3: Okay, so um, how we explained the, explain what has happened to ourselves is called our explanatory style. And how we do that tends, you can describe it in three dimensions. Do I explain bad events to myself as permanent or temporary, personal or outside of me, or specific or pervasive? And when we work with kids, we turn that into, or Karen turned it into me, always everything. So something goes, you know, I don't get invited to a party. Was that because of me or not me? Was it because of, do I never get invited or was it just this time? Is that because nobody loves me or this one person in my class I didn't click with? And, and all of that adds up to having an optimistic or a pessimistic explanatory style.
0: By the way, that and, that particular sequence, my understanding of Karen's research is can can hi, correlate highly with depression as well, because you think your problems so, are your fault, and they're going to impact everything, and they're never going to go away.
3: And and the two biggest drivers that predict depression are the permanence and the personal yes the pervasive one not so isn't the bigger driver it's those two in particular that predict hopelessness and depression
0: Which is where that that. Flex, that's actually... where that flexibility comes in is right because that you're not doing yourself any good not that people have a choice necessarily right but if you find yourself stuck in that you've got to be able to kind of have some flexible thinking to get yourself into another channel maybe back to that growth trajectory that we talked about earlier right
3: yeah and 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 so, coming back to the you know the the stew of resilience competencies, I wasn't someone who was originally blessed with optimism or hope. And so I have had to really work at developing my flexibility, my 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 checking. Is it that? What else could it be? I'm pulling myself over? Yeah. and i we don't all have to go through the same door. I'm not high on hope, but I get there through gratitude. I notice, like, so what is good? What is working for me? What have I got to be grateful for in my life? And that seems to open the door for me to become hopeful. So I think this thing of resilience is really interesting. And, like, as Lucy says, Everybody's stew is different, and it doesn't matter if you don't do it the same way as everybody else, as long as you can get there in the
1: end. Thank you so much, Lucy and Denise, for sharing your wonderful wisdom with us. This has been a fantastic conversation. So we have a question we like to ask all of our guests for our final question, called the flourishing question. What's the one lesson on flourishing you want our listeners to walk away with, and what is a practical step for putting that into action? easy one right?
2: okay, okay. <laughs> um actually so my mine mine is that we need to be more empathetic empathetic and understanding that flourishing isn't necessarily the only goal because or the only end goal because for so many people particularly right now who are dealing with bereavement it's pretty unfair to, you know, say to them, oh, you need to be flourishing. So I think we do need more research into what it means to be flourishing when you are dealing with a high level of adversity because it's not impossible. But what does that look like? So, and there is some new research coming out of the Templeton Foundation there at Boston Uni as well, though they're looking at that. And so I think that's really exciting. Um, And then I guess, when you are dealing with high levels of, of adversity and you're trying to keep your life on track, my piece of advice is comes from Chris Futner's work where he says, what are you hoping for now, is his question. And basically it's meaning now that you feel like all hope is lost, what are you hoping for now, gets us to think about are little, that hope isn't just a one singular thing, that it has all these smaller entities underneath it. And for me in my kind of darkest hour, having that question just shifted my goal from the life I thought I was living to actually what is important to me now and really identified that, you know, my family are everything actually. And so once I knew and I'd identified that, it made Future flourishing and future functioning, um, a much easier, more direct roadmap for me. Mm -hmm.
0: Thank you. Denise?
3: Um, I think where I come back to is the seeds of the solution to any problem lie in what's working and what's good with us, and not in what's broken or what's wrong with us. And so it's Not always easy, but it is absolutely vital to pay attention to what's good and what's working. Even Mm. when we've had a bit of a disaster, to look at it and go, well, okay, well, yeah, but which bits worked? What is going well? And on a on a really rotten day, what's still good? You know? And I think if we can hold on to that and train our attention, pull our attention away from our massive negativity bias to mm-hmm. what's with us. And whether that's a, for an individual or as a parent or as a teacher, as a leader, to be able to focus on what's right with people, what's right with our situation, um, can really shift the, 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 the balance of our moments and therefore of our days.
0: I have a colleague will wrap with us um, and give you a chance to just tell our listeners where they can interact with you more. I have a colleague at a school you're all, I think, familiar with. We'll, we'll leave the title out. But um, this person is a MAP grad. So for our listeners, that's a master's in applied positive psychology. Uh, they wrote kind of their final paper on their experience um, navigating through cancer. And surviving it and everything that came with that, Um, I think, including, you know, double mastectomy, like the whole nine yards. And she proposes a new concept or what she feels is a new concept called serene gratitude. And my head kept going there. And what you've both kind of been describing today, grateful, but not without some unpleasantness alongside Mm -hmm. it as well, I think. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, great. So much good stuff uh, today. We really appreciate uh, you both taking some time to chat with us. Um, We could do this sort of all day. You both have a wealth of knowledge in a variety of areas. Where can our listeners interact with you? Courses, podcasts, website, lay it on them, but we'll put it in the show notes as well.
2: Oh, okay. I think the best place to contact or just see our work is on LinkedIn um, and on Instagram, you know, something for everyone. <laughs> um, Instagram is the more trivial side of our lives or, um, and in, and LinkedIn is where we share much of our work. So that's at the New Zealand Institute of wellbeing and resilience, but also on our personal LinkedIn profiles. Great. Perfect.
0: Yeah. And Perfect.
3: then I I know you've got a lot of um, educators in your listenership. so. Um, given given the time educators were having over the last couple of years we kept getting requests for people to they need support so we set up a face pre facebook community called teacher boost and mm. we share it's a place to um take a break um get some support make some connections and get some hope and that's mm. that's the goal of teacher boost and then Coming from that, we have um, a series of kind of online learning sessions and conversations called Learning Boost. And if they come to Teacher Boost, they'll find out about those. And that's Great. very much um, to try and support educators.
1: Beautiful. Awesome. Thank you. I'm going to check these out and share yeah. them.
3: And then we do have a podcast called Bringing Wellbeing to Life. And,
0: there we
3: go. Great. And it's been going for quite a while. And... Like we've got a series on resilient grieving. We had another series on whole school well-being that kind of accompanied our book, The Educator's Guide to Building Whole School Well-Being right. and for People in Education. And we always say to people, it's, it's a process. When we talk about building well-being in systems, it's the process is the content. How you involve people and bring them in is actually much more important than the nuggets of information and so we describe a lot of our work in that in that book as giving people a standardized process that helps them develop individualized contextualized well-being plans that are right for their school
0: right. so if people
3: mm-hmm. are interested in that that's available
0: so many good resources. Uh, like I said, we'll put everything in the show notes, but it's awesome. You're both doing tremendous work, huge amount of respect for you both. And and again, we thank you for the time, Dr. Lucy Hone and Dr. Denise Quinlan. Thank you. Uh, thank
3: you. Delight to be with you. Thank you, Nick and
0: John.
3: Thanks, guys.
1: It's been a great combo. Huge thanks to all of you for listening to today's show. If you like what you heard, please share it with
0: friends, family, colleagues, and be sure to leave us a five-star review. Uh, You can also find us on all social media platforms. Uh, We've got our own YouTube channel, and you can check out our website at flourishfmpodcast.com.
1: We'd also love to hear from you. There's a survey in the show notes you can complete, where you can complete any suggestions on guests you'd like to hear us interview or particular topics or themes you'd like to hear us talk about we'd love to hear your feedback on that so your feedback would be greatly appreciated if you could fill out that form until next time thank you very much for joining us today and keep putting in the work